All right, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 48. Genesis 48. It is my privilege, uh, week after week, to be able to open up God's Word to you and to consider this. Uh, This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired Word. And so I would like to ask God to prepare our hearts uh, to receive and consider this text of Scripture together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so delighted uh, to be able to gather here outside today. And as we come before you today and consider these things from your word, we pray for two things. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things that are in your word. I pray that our deepest considerations today would be given at this moment to what the holy, inspired word of God says. And then secondly, Father, I pray that you would use your word to sanctify us, to change us, to cause spiritual growth in our lives. Lord, we know that growth comes by the washing of the water of the Word of God. And so, Lord, as we consider this ancient text today, I pray that you would not only open our eyes, but that you would change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we consider Genesis uh, chapters 47, I I think I had you turn to 48. We're going to look at 47 and 48 today. Uh, Our sermon will consider the second half of Genesis 47 and all of Genesis 48. They're really two parts, and they follow, primarily follow, the chapter division. Uh, The first half will be about the way that God provides for Jacob's family. Genesis 47, verses 13 through 27. And then the second half of the sermon will consider some of Jacob's final moments uh, in the end of 47, but then all of chapter 48 as well. Now, In these two stories, we're going to learn more about how God works. We're going to learn more about his character. We're going to learn more about his will. And uh, so it's a delight to be able to do that together uh, today outside on such a beautiful day. And uh, um, among the many lessons we'll learn about God uh, is uh, concerning uh, his will and blessing. Uh, Today I think we're going to see that God's will and blessing often defies human calculations. If I had uh, a proposition for the sermon, that'd be, that'd be what it is. God's will and blessing often defy human calculations. Now, there are a whole lot of places in the Bible I could go to, to demonstrate that to you, but today we're considering Genesis 47 and 48. In the first half of this sermon, the first point, uh, Genesis 47, we'll consider the fate of the Egyptian people and the fate of the Israelite people during a time of famine. And we'll learn here that God advantages the lesser of the nations. There is no earthly human reason 
that the visiting smaller nation should fare better than the large resident nation of the Egyptians. Uh, But God does things differently. In the second half, in Genesis 48, we'll we'll consider two boys who stand before their grandfather for a blessing. And we'll see again that the greater blessing goes to the lesser of the boys, the one who should receive the least. And again, there'll be no earthly human reason for it. There's no reason that the younger the two boys should receive the greater blessing, but God's will and blessing often defy human calculations. Perhaps you come here today aware of your own insignificance. You feel disadvantaged. Maybe you're under great financial duress, or uh, you are under the weight of great physical trials or diagnosis, or uh, you are painfully aware of your own lack of spiritual gifts. You consider the rest of the body of Jesus Christ. Well, may the God who gives abundantly and freely to the lesser encourage you today as we go through this text. Well, the first part of our text starts in Genesis 47, and it starts with a contrast between the fate of the Egyptians and the fate of the Israelites. This first section uh, describes the Egyptians' fortunes from verses 13 through 26. So several verses about the Egyptians, but then Moses gives one verse at the end about the fate of the Israelite people. And I'm convinced that he intends it as a bold contrast between what came of the Egyptians and what came of the Israelite people during this famine. And so we start with the description of the Egyptians' fate, and uh, it's really twofold. In verse 13, we learned that they languished. Look down in your Bible at Genesis 47, verse 13. It says, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Here, Moses generally describes the situation down in Egypt during this severe famine. Things were intense for the Egyptian and the Canaanites uh, because of the famine. And more specifically in this verse, he says that the land of Egypt languished. That means the land of Egypt dried out. It failed completely. I think it means nothing grew at all during this severe famine. No crops came forward. All was stark and withered and dry and dead across the land. That leads to a second description of their fate in verses 14 through 26. And right before I read that, let me just say, I think that the point of verses 14 through 26 is uh, not only that their land languished, but they lost everything. Again, remember, we're considering the Egyptians. The Egyptians lost everything. And Moses highlights this with repetition. In the first two verses, verses 14 and 15, he talks about their loss of money. So if you highlight in your Bible, I know you probably didn't think to bring your highlighter with all the other things that you had to bring for an outdoor service. But if you highlight in your Bible, you can see the word money four times in verses 14 and 15. And then he goes to another level. He goes to a deeper level when they not only lose all their money, they lose uh, 
they lose all their livestock. Verses 16 and 17 mentions the word livestock four times. And then divides it up and, and, and also talks about what made up their livestock. They lose all their livestock as well. And then in verses 18 through 26, it goes to another level where they lose all their land. Okay, so you're falling. They lost their money, their livestock, their land. The word land is mentioned 13 times in verses 18 through 26. And not only do they lose their land, they lose themselves. The word we or our bodies uh, is mentioned eight times in these verses as well as what we find uh, that happens to the Egyptians is they have nothing left, so they sell themselves into slavery. I want to walk through this with you. And so let's first look at the loss of money, verses 14 and 15. Just look there in your Bible. It says, And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. Okay, so things start swiftly here. The Egyptians make a simple exchange. They take their money. Now, the Hebrew word here is a word for silver. That's their currency during the day. They take their silver and they give it in exchange for grain. And this enables them to endure a year or the first level of the famine. But things get worse. So at the end of this passage, it says that they had no money left. No silver left in all the land. That's when they appeal to Joseph to just give them food. Let's stop for a moment. Perhaps you can relate a little bit to this with some of the financial pressure that we're experiencing. Perhaps your bank accounts are getting lower and lower as a result of our own pressures. But could you imagine a time when it was all gone, all your money? Some of you would say, well, maybe, <laughs> probably. I could imagine that. Well, that's, that's what happens here. All of their money, all of their silver is gone. So Joseph moves on to another commodity that they can exchange for food, their livestock. So look down in verse 16. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. I'll just point out a few quick things here. First, it seems that these people have no other option but to sell some of the most valuable possessions that they have. They're valuable animals that work the fields. And they're doing this so that they can have food for their own mouths. This perhaps makes sense to them, right? Because not only do they have to feed themselves, they have to feed these animals who are doing work for them. And really, these animals aren't as valuable if you're not plowing and harvesting anything because of the drought. But I want you to notice the end of verse 17. Do you see what actually happens in this one year? Notice their need of food costs them all their livestock. All of it. They run through it in one year. Okay, so uh, they have little left and this will cripple them for quite some time, for years 
to come, but at least they have food for this year. And that's when we find out what happens in the following year down in verse 18. And here I'll read a little lengthier section again. Now we're looking for the words land and selves, or we are our bodies. Look at verse 18. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of our livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes? They'd asked him that the year before. Why should we die before uh, your eyes, both we and our land, by us, And our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die. And that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day brought you, or I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please the Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day. That Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priests alone, did not become Pharaoh's. Here we come to a difficult passage, right? And we come to a a challenging text that uh, I've actually seen several weeks in advance and thought, you know, that's going to be a hard one to preach. And I had personally some, some natural questions, I think, that come to this text, with, with nothing left at all, the people come to Joseph and they beg for food if they would be uh, willing, if they give up their land and become slaves. Now, as we read this text, many modern readers struggle with Joseph in this passage, or maybe even struggle with the Bible in this text. Modern readers, that's us, We want to, Joseph, to give everything away. And we don't understand how he would resort to enslaving people who are enduring a famine. Right? This can be truly unsettling. And so one of the questions it really poses for us is a big question. And that is, is the Bible condoning slavery? Is the Bible condoning slavery? And I would just say that's a very big question that, that really demands consideration of all of Scripture. On a personal level, one of the ways I reckon with this, uh, just as I consider the whole of Scripture, is to note that slavery is not found in Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden when things were perfect. 
Slavery is not found in the final two chapters as well of the book of Revelation when we're in heaven with God. And so I would say this, uh, slavery is not the way God designed things to be. But if I'm looking at this text, the one we're considering, and we dig in a little bit, I just point out a few things to you here about the situation of the Egyptians and the slavery. To try to answer this question, is the Bible condoning slavery? Well, first, I would point out this. The Egyptian situation was extremely dire. They thought they were going to die. If you look at the beginning part of verse 19, they they think they're going to die. And I would suggest that we're not normally exposed to this level of hunger or famine in our world, in our culture today. And so I'd say that these people are likely emaciated, ready to die. But then secondly, I want to point out that in this situation, it's the Egyptians' suggestion that they become slaves to Pharaoh. Okay, you say, where is that in the text? You look at verse 19, middle of the verse. They say, buy us and our land. Okay, so I think that there's some level of significance to that as well. This is the Egyptian solution to, Pharaoh, to Joseph and Pharaoh, by us and our land. Now, third, I'd point out, I, I think it's also significant that they ask for seed so that the land does not become completely inhabitable. This is a little bit different than what we've seen before. They ask for food. They ask for rations. Now they're asking for seed, and I think it reveals how bad things are. Not only do they have no food, no rations, no animals, now they have no seed left to plant for future crops. That is, they have no hope in the future. Now, I'd also point out that what Joseph's solution is, uh, is that they would give one-fifth of their possessions, that they would be required to give one-fifth or 20% of their future income as the ongoing cost of their service. Right? You see that in your Bible? One-fifth will be Pharaoh's, four-fifths will be yours to care for yourself and your little ones. And uh, if you really stop and think about that percentage, it might not quite be as bad as what we would think. I mean, first, if you consider by ancient standards, uh, it, it would be nothing in some ancient parts of the world for a master with a slave to require 30 or 35 percent. Joseph gives 20%. And I'd even say by modern standards, 20% taxes is not all that bad either. When compared to some people who have to pay income and state and city taxes on everything that they make. You know, sometimes it feels like twice. As a matter of fact, uh, in an online tel- tax uh, calculator this morning, I noted that the effective tax rate in Virginia Beach and Chesapeake this year for the average income person is 24.56% tax. Okay, so fiscally, our situation is not better than theirs. I would add to this, though, that uh, fifth, in this situation, uh, we're not aware of any of the vices that normally accompany slavery in its dark forms. And for this, I think what you could do is you could just simply go through like the Ten Commandments, and especially the ones that relate to uh, other people. So we're not aware in this passage of the slavery resulting in immoral exploitation. There are other words we could use for that, but with the smaller 
crowd among us as well, immoral exploitation. We're not aware of that with the Egyptian slavery. We're not aware of the physical abuse. We're not aware of murder or of stealing. Uh, Much like we're going to see in some of the very next chapters in the beginning of Exodus, Exodus 1 and 2, we're going to see the Israelite people later on objected to a form of slavery that includes those sorts of terrible things as well. But then finally, I want to point out how the Egyptians see this arrangement, this financial arrangement. They see this as grace. You look in verse 25. He says, they say, you have saved our lives. Here, they're completely vulnerable and needy. They've lost everything. So they willingly give up their land to Pharaoh and they agree to serve as his servants. And they see this as a form of salvation for them. Well, that's the fate of the Egyptians. Seven excruciating years. Things get worse and worse. There's much death and loss for them. So that now they exist as indentured servants of Pharaoh. And forced to pay a tax that survives the whole way down down to the days of Moses. Now compare that with the one verse, and this is going to be drastic, okay? So hopefully you brought your Bible or a phone or something. You can look, you can see this, okay? Compare that description of the Egyptians. Their land languished and they lost everything to verse 27 and what God says about the Israelites. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Here, in striking contrast to the Egyptians who lost everything but their lives, the the Israelites gain possessions. They're fruitful. They multiply greatly. I mean, imagine this. What if the Israelites ever felt a little self-conscious about that? They're living in Goshen, and the Egyptians keep selling everything off, and they keep getting everything for free. During this worldwide famine, the Israelites grew in possessions and population while the Egyptians lost everything. And so as I wrap up this first half of the sermon, we learn this. We learn that God's will and blessing defy human calculations. God delights to help those who have nothing but trust in him and his plan and purposes. That's God's amazing provision for Jacob's family. Now, in the remaining parts of our sermon this morning, we'll consider, we'll begin to consider Jacob's final moments, Genesis 48. And uh, here we'll learn the same lesson. Uh, now, we won't consider all of Jacob's final moments today. We'll consider this this Sunday and next Sunday. But nothing really remains in Genesis other than Joseph's final moments right at the end of the book. So this is a big part of the remainder of the book, Jacob's final moments. His final moments include six events. We'll look at three today, quickly, and three next week. Uh, this scene of Jacob's final moments all occurs on his deathbed. And uh, importantly later, it's one of these events that the author of Hebrews picks out as the greatest display of faith in Jacob's life. If you were trying to do 
determine what, when did Jacob display faith in the greatest level in all of his life. You might not think of one of these, but Hebrews 11 and verse 21 says this. It says, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Here, when the author of Hebrews considers the greatest demonstration of faith in the life of Jacob, he thinks of the moment we're going to consider right here. And here in this important lesson, we'll learn that uh, although death presents probably the, the greatest trial that any of us will ever experience, um, it also presents us with the greatest opportunity to demonstrate faith, vibrant faith. And uh, so I want to look at the first of these events on the deathbed of Jacob. It starts at the end of chapter 47. We can deal with this one quickly. First, there's a discussion about his burial plot. Look at verse 28. When Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, uh, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh And promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Okay, so first we learn that Jacob is approaching death. And this time it's real. Okay, throughout his life... Uh, you know, he just keeps getting older and older, and there's indications that he might die at different times. But this time, it's actually going to happen, okay? Uh, when I read through this story, sometimes I think of Jacob, you know, just kind of having a martyr's complex. Uh, perhaps you've known someone that just always seems to be going into the hospital. Uh, here, Joseph's, or, uh, Jacob's like, I think he's like always talking about his death, but now it's going to happen. He's 147 years old, and in this moment, Jacob asked Joseph to carry out a symbolic gesture and to take an oath that Jacob will take his body, or that Joseph will take his body back to Canaan for burial. Uh, There are a few important observations you can make here. First, the symbolic act of putting the hand under the thigh and the oath signify the seriousness of this moment. Joseph is a close son of his father, Jacob, and he must come through on this. Okay, and that's his commitment. But then secondly, there's this part of this passage that's pretty intriguing, where it says at the end, after Joseph promises to do this, that Jacob bows himself on the head of his bed. Okay, and that little phrase actually is a little bit curious for us. It's challenging in some ways. One of the ways is the word bed. At the end. Uh, The word bed comes from a a Hebrew word that is one letter different than the word for staff. And because of some uh, variants, textual variants, there's a lot of question about did he bow himself over the end of his bed or over the end of his staff? Okay, and boy, if you read about this, you could just read so much about this one question. Okay, and I'm not going to actually say very much about it. I, I think it's probably better to say bed. Okay? 
But I think what is even more important is why is he bowing himself over the, which, by the way, some of the commentators even say, well, it was both the staff and the bed. Okay, so there are different ways to solve. I think it's probably bed. But the bigger question is, why is he doing this? Why is he bowing himself at this moment over the head of his bed? What motivates him to do this? And the text here is not exactly clear on why. It may be that he's simply weak or dying, okay, and that this is all the strength he has. So he just bows himself over the head of his bed. Or it may be that he's bowing in submission to his son Joseph, which would make some of those earlier visions or the dream that he had about his father bowing to him actually come alive, right? I think the dream is fulfilled. The question is just here, is it here? Or perhaps, I think there's a better way to look at this, when he bows himself over the head of his bed, it's an act of worship to God. Matter of fact, I think that's how the author of Hebrews takes it. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 21, he says that he was bowing in worship over the head of his bed. And and so, reality here is in this moment, as he's dying, because his son takes him up on this pledge and makes an oath Jacob stops on his deathbed and he worships to God on the spot. Musters up his strength and bows in worship over the head of his bed. What a powerful act of faith. I trust that my deathbed will be a place where I worship God. That's what Jacob does here, my opinion. But then as we look to Genesis 48, the deathbed scene also includes a special time with his grandsons. I want to read through verses 1 through 20 with you. This will allow us to go a little bit more quickly through it. We're going to read all of verses 1 through 20, and then I'll make some comments about this special time with his grandsons. Look at verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took him with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Joseph, or to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, uh, I'm sorry, and, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Verse six. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, there are my sons whom God has given to me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. 
So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Then Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim. It displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head. To Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim. And as Manasseh, then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. One of the events on Jacob's deathbed is the adoption and blessing of his grandsons. We just read through this passage, and in the first two verses, we see the setting. Here, Joseph comes back to where his father is because he he hears he's sick. And uh, we know that Joseph has been a special son to his father. And here we learn that Joseph's sons are also given a special treatment. And if I were looking at these verses just in survey and pointing out the big movement of this passage, I I would say this. It involves an adoption ceremony in verses 3 through 7 and a giving of the blessing in verses 8 through 20. So in the first three verses, verse 3 through 7, we're told that Jacob adopts these children as his own. I think the ancient adoption is seen very clearly in verse 5, when Jacob says that Ephraim and Manasseh, he says, they are mine. And then later on he says, they shall be mine. He's intending to adopt these two boys, these two grandsons, and lift them from the status of being a grandson to being a status of a son, to give them equal rights with all the other sons. And it actually appears that it goes a little bit beyond that. Um, So that what he's actually doing, in my opinion, is he's giving at least to Ephraim, but perhaps also to Manasseh, he's giving them the birthright. You say, well, where do you see that in in this text? I I just would point it out in two different parallel texts. And uh, perhaps you have Genesis 48 open. You can go to 49 right across the page. And you look at verses 3 and 4 about Reuben. Remember, he's the firstborn. He's the one who should get the birthright, the double blessing. But he's been disqualified. 
So look at verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, but unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed. You defiled it. You went up to my couch. Okay, that's the end of the statement about Reuben. Reuben is not going to get the the firstborn's uh, birthright. But neither is his brother, the second or third, Simeon or Levi. They, They as well are disqualified. As a matter of fact, another text in your Bible, and you can just write down the reference, or, or just think of 1 Chronicles chapter 5. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we're told a little bit more about what happens here. Okay, and I'm going to read it to you. 1 Chronicles 5, verses 1 and 2. Okay, verse 1 says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he, that's Reuben, he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Okay, so in this text, what is going on in this formal adoption is that Jacob is going to treat these two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his own. And he's going to give the firstborn birthright to the sons of Joseph. And his rationale for that is Rachel died too soon. The grief of losing Rachel, she'd only produced two sons for him. Joshua and Benjamin. She dies to childbirth with Benjamin. She's not able to produce more children. And so he, he, he uh, adopts these two grandsons to become his sons so that he will be able to give them the birthright and inheritance. But Jacob does more than adopt them. He blesses them in verses 8 through 20. In these verses, blessing is most definitely the theme. Uh, You see it over and over again. The word to bless is used five times here in these verses. The formal blessing of the boys starts then in verses 8 through 20 with a question I found really, it just struck me as being interesting this week. He asked, who are these boys? Okay, I don't know if that struck you as being a little bit odd. Okay, what we know about Jacob is he's been living in Goshen for 17 years. Okay. And so he asks Joseph, who are these boys in front of me? Now, it could be that, you know, being half blind, uh, he doesn't recognize them here as an elderly father. But I think there's a better explanation. I think this is a formal question that indicates the candidates for the adoption. It's kind of like at a marriage uh, when you ask, when the pastor asks, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Okay, well, if the pastor doesn't know by that point, some things are probably pretty, you know, pretty off here. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Well, it's a formal legal question to tell us who, who the candidates are for marriage. Okay, and I think when he asks, who are, the, who are these boys? It's so that Joseph could indicate who the candidates are for the adoption and the blessing. After that question is considered, something else intriguing happens. Uh, In the text, and if you're reading clearly here, the text says that the boys come and they're on, initially, they're on the knees of their grandfather. See that here? Okay, and that's the way that the English Standard Version translates this. 
this concept. And it could be, okay, but just imagine this, right? If this is the case, 147-year-old dying grandfather with 20-something-year-old boys on his knees. Okay, again, that could be it. But you could also translate the word from as at or near. And that's how I would take it. They're at or near their grandfather. Okay, Uh, for some reason, when I first read this, I thought of like Buddy the Elf with his dad. Okay, if you've ever like seen uh, that movie, Elf. You know, I was just thinking of like these big boys on this elderly grandfather. I I don't think that's it. I, I think that they're at or near his niece. And they're there as a symbolic act, a formal act, to symbolize giving birth at adoption ceremonies. So they're right there. That's when Jacob begins to bless the boys, but he crosses his hands. And the text makes a very significant point out of that. Now, imagine Joseph here. Joseph. His elderly father, 147 years old is, in his opinion, messing things up. Okay, so Joseph, I think, out of grace and mercy, tries to correct his elderly father. Have you ever tried to correct your elderly father before? Sometimes that can be uh, quite difficult. But as an act of mercy or grace, Joseph does this. And, and it's, it's ironic, because instead of manipulating him as an elderly handicapped father like Jacob himself did. I think Joseph is trying to help him. He lined up the boys in the right side so it was easier for Jacob. But Jacob crosses his hands and he tries to help him, but Jacob will have nothing of it. He knows what he's doing. And he knows it because God has revealed it to him. So Jacob says that both boys will be powerful, but that Ephraim, the youngest, will actually become the father of a multitude of nations. The youngest is going to get the most significant blessing. That's what Jacob knows. Now, you know, a little while ago we said, imagine Joseph, you know, he's just seeing his elderly father messing things up and he's trying to help him. But imagine if you're Ephraim here. Ephraim is there near the knee knees of his grandfather and overhears this whole conversation and then begins to hit him. What? What? That's that's amazing. I'm going to get the stronger blessing. And this prophetic statement comes true. I don't have the time because I'm I'm running a little bit late here today, but I don't have the time to show you this. But later on in the Bible, I think of the divided kingdom of Israel. Uh, Later on when they have a king over the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel, Just think of what those two people are called. The southern kingdom of Israel, that's called Judah. Why are they called Judah? Because Judah becomes the most significant, most populous tribe of the two and a half tribes in the south. So so the authors of scripture can say the southern kingdom is Judah. Okay, but what about the northern kingdom of Israel? Well, they're called Israel or a synonymous expression for the northern kingdom is sometimes the author of scripture calls the nine and a half tribes of Israel in the north, they call them by one name, Ephraim. Ephraim. Why Ephraim? Ephraim became the most significant and populous of all of the remaining nine and a half tribes of people here. 
And so can there be any doubt in these final moments that these final moments are of God? God is working. He gives a prophetic gift to Jacob to cross his hands. And God's choice is portrayed in the crossed hands of Jacob so that the undeserving one receives the greater blessing. As I was thinking about this, this whole crossed hand thing, I think that this crossed hand theology shouldn't be surprising to us as children of God through Jesus Christ. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. He saved us, and he did so not because of any merit of our own, No, he gave his deserving son's divine blessing and righteousness to us. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you know what it means to be blessed by God while you were completely undeserving. That leaves only one last moment for us to consider in verses 21 and 22. Look look down at verse 21 to to see a special gift that goes to Joseph. It says, And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your father. See his faith on his deathbed. He's going to do it. Although I'm going to pass away, he's going to help you. Moreover, I've given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the land of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Okay, so Joseph's here with his two sons. They become sons of his father, Jacob. And in this special moment, he says, okay, I've got a special thing for you. I've got a special gift for you. As if Jacob didn't learn, right? All of their problems started initially back when he gave a special gift to Joseph, a special coat. But now I've got this one piece of property. And I wouldn't point out too much about this other than it could be translated one shoulder of property, one uh, ridge, one slope. And I just suggest that this is likely the only piece of property that Jacob owns in Canaan. It may be the only piece he owns besides his burial plot. But other than that, he gives the one piece of land in Canaan that he owns only to Joseph as a special gift to him. In these final moments, Joseph gets a special parcel of ground, completing Jacob's blessing on the lowly, lost seed of Joseph. As we close today in this field, may we rejoice in a God who calls and blesses those who have no human merit. It would make more sense for the people of Egypt to prosper, to multiply and grow than the visiting small tribes of Israel. But God extended mercy and grace to them. He chose them and he blessed them. It would make more sense to give the blessing or the birthright to the oldest grandson. But Jacob crosses his hands. He crosses his hands so that the one that is the least deserving is the one that receives the blessing. God's will and choice and blessing often defies any human calculation 
so that the person who receives the blessing knows it's not of me. It's not of us. It's of him.